2: Hello, and welcome to Energized, a podcast series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Ibidrola, bringing together leading voices to discuss the big issues within energy and the environment. I'm your host Kamal Ahmed and today's topic, the second in our series on the role of energy networks in the race to net zero is smart grids. There is no transition without transmission That's a phrase echoed by politicians and scientists. Last week we heard from an amazing expert panel who gave us an overview of networks, their place in the energy landscape and the differences between the UK, the US and continental Europe. And also we talked about the problems and the potential solutions to harnessing the power of renewable energy. Now today we're sticking with networks but diving in even further. Smart grids are widely vaunted as a solution to our network woes but what actually are they? Why are they so critical to the energy transition? Where are we now in their development and where are we going? What is the role of governments and private companies in funding and implementing these innovative new technologies? Do join us as we talk about a world of drones AI, augmented reality and robots. Yes, it really is the future right here in this podcast. So to help us answer these questions and more, I am joined by three wonderful experts in this field. We have Marta Solas. She is the head of smart grid operations at Scottish Power Energy Networks. Rob Gramlich. Is the founder and president of Grid Strategies LC, where he provides economic policy analysis for clients in electrical transmission and power markets looking to decarbonize. He also serves as Executive Director of Americans for a Clean Energy Grid. And last, Charles Wood is the Deputy Director of Energy UK, the Trade Association for the Energy Industry. And last Charles Wood. He's the Deputy Director of Energy UK, the trade association for the energy industry. His work focuses on the development of a smart, flexible energy system fit for the future of net zero. Welcome to all my guests. Now, Marta, I'm going to come to you first. Can you start by telling us what exactly we mean when we talk about a smart grid? What do the grids of the future look like in practice and how are they different? from the way the grid is operating at the moment and in the past?
1: I'm very pleased to participate in this podcast. So, well, the definition of smart grids is a very simple definition. Basically, they are grids that are smart. (laughs) They are grids that are garnished and enhanced with electronic devices, with digital technologies, that at the end are meant to create value for customers, improving quality of service and enabling our path to the energy transition. So, some of the key benefits that you've heard about and you will hear about during this podcast are customer service improvement, which is a key one, loss reduction, grid automation, enabling the electrification of transport, and the integration of electric heating, all meant to enable our path to net zero, to reduce CO2 emissions. But what are the key components in the smart grids of the present? First of all, we've got control systems that are the brains of the grid that are monitoring and controlling 24 7 the network. They are a digital representation of the electric network diagram. And these are, as you can imagine, key as a control function. Then we've got in the field automation. that enable to operate remotely the network. And then we've got in the low voltage network, low voltage monitors, smart meters that collect valuable information from the lowest level of capillarity of the network, which is the low voltage network. And then putting it all together as a key component of smart grids of the present, we've got telecommunications infrastructure that enable connectivity between devices in the field and the central component of the smart grid. But how were they in the past? So grids or electric grids have evolved from unidirectional model with big central power plants delivering electricity downwards in a very hierarchical way down to the customer with big transmission cables down to distribution cables, the customer played a passive role, just receiving electricity inbound and maybe being impacted by long blackouts in a false scenario. So they had to suffer this because there wasn't this flexibility, this intelligence that the smart grids can add into improving the quality of service. So we've moved from this unidirectional model towards a bidirectional model in which we've got distributed energy resources that are integrated into the network. We've got a customer that is playing a role that we call prosumer because they are also producing electricity. They can also interact with the system. So it's a huge change. And this change is necessary to to enable our transition to net zero. So what we see as markets of the future is thanks to having access to more and more data so that we will have many more electronic devices in the field, monitors, sensors that will gather information from the field and will allow us to get to know the network in detail, to be able to model it so that we can forecast the future, we can know before it happens that a fault might occur so that we can be proactive solving issues before they happen. And uh, we can integrate renewable energy producers without jeopardizing the capacity of the network. So it's a very exciting future with all the development in terms of AI, as you mentioned before, robotization, data analytics. So it's all embedded into the present and into what the future will be.
2: That's really super explanation of the important developments that are coming are already here to some extent with smart grids. But tell us, why is this so important when we're talking about decarbonization? Where does it really help there?
1: Well, what we talk, so in our Scottish Power Energy Networks, digitalization and ED2 strategies. So we call the four Ds as the key drivers to, to, to smart grids. So first of all, first of them is decentralization decarbonization, digitalization, and then democratization, which is making the customer participate into the decision, into the grid. So, talking about decarbonization, well, uh, it's, as you said before, Kamal, there is no net zero without smart grids, without digital technologies that can allow to integrate renewable energy producers. So, smart grids, are a key, a vital cornerstone of this energy transition, making sure that the grid is ready to integrate renewables, to integrate electric vehicles, and, and to be able to support the increase in electric heating, electric heat pumps. So so in response to the global climate crisis, we've got a commitment to to be net zero by 2045. In Scotland, and by I think 2050 in England and Wales. We've got other key milestones to achieve by 2030, lots of investment, and most of this investment to become in net zero is focused on smart grids. So, in order to analyze and to better quantify this driver of decarbonization, we are forecasting how much. Electricity, our customers will need, how many heat pumps we will have in the next 10 years, how many electrical vehicles we foresee that will be ready to connect to the network. So, getting access to this modeling of the network is what is giving us information that is key, is crucial to enable the grid of the present to be able to support this degree of electrification that the communities and customers are asking for. So in terms of decentralization, we are also able to forecast what the future looks like. So we have anticipated an increase of around 2.6 times the number of distributed energy resources connected to the network. So that, that helps us to know where the network will be constrained and where we need to reinforce the network. So we need to be ready for that to happen. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
0: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
2: Now, Rob, Charles, I'm going to bring you in and let's go a bit geographical if we can. Rob, from the US point of view, Marta's laid out the, the necessity of smart grids and their importance and why they are so essential to our journey to net zero. Just in terms of America, progress is all important because without these changes, we will not hit the targets. In relation to the US, how are we doing on progress? Do you feel confident what has been happening? What are the innovations? And then maybe give us a map for the next few years ahead.
3: Sure. Well, great to be with you. Yes, in the US, we have had some decarbonization progress. Some of it is gas units replacing coal, but a lot of it increasingly is renewable energy replacing both all fossil on the power system. And wind and solar really are very cost competitive now. And so we've been deploying them very strongly here, as in most countries. And we have some of the same issues that most countries have in that a lot of the best wind and solar sites with lower cost land and high resource potential and high production from the wind and solar farms with a lot of wind and sun tend to be very far from the population centers. So some of the progress we've had in the US are, for example, in West Texas, bringing wind power to Houston and Dallas or bringing wind power from North and South Dakota into Chicago and points east in in our country. And we continue to do that. There's a new line that's being put up right now, a new transmission line uh, bringing Wyoming wind into California. So California has a tremendous amount of solar power. So they have a lot of 2 p.m. in the afternoon power, but this wind power is going to produce at different times. So that's where, you know, most countries are getting into this next phase of renewable energy development, where it really matters the time and place of the production, and you have to diversify that to get it from different different hours of the day in order to meet load, meet demand at all times. Well, that requires transmission, and it also requires what you could call smart grids, which is being able to control now thousands of supply resources that are operating at different times. And as Marta described, instead of just having fixed demand that followed normal patterns, now you have actual controllable demand and thousands of resources on the demand side. And so you have to integrate that across very wide areas. So that's what we're working on here in the U.S. Charles, could I bring you in about the UK experience? Let's start at
2: that, that smart grid level first, and then maybe come on to the smart meters issue. But let's start at the grid level. Again, your level of confidence about what you're seeing happening and why it matters. So I think
0: overall recovery of the state of affairs, we have so many years known that we need a smarter grid. We've known that we need... Everything from better IT systems for the system operator so that they can connect to a huge number of assets across the system compared to the typical connection of just a large generator. And we also know that we need monitoring capabilities at low voltages and across the network to understand what actually is happening on the network at any given rate, especially now, as Marta mentioned, you've got more and more prosumers who are putting energy back into the grid rather than the other way around. So we need to know the flows, which way are things going, and actually manage that on a close to real-time basis. But we now find ourselves in a position where not only have we got, have we had a decade of the UK being the fastest decarbonized power system across the globe, so the fastest reduction in carbon, which is a fantastic thing to achieve, We've now got the British energy security strategy that's quadrupled offshore wind targets, quadru, quintu, quintupled, always a difficult word to say, quintupled solar, and looks to build eight new nuclear plants by 2030. And we've now had a sudden burst of people trying to connect. And you've got something like 600 connection, connecting parties in the queue. You've got around 204 gigawatts of connecting generation where the total electricity generation connected to the transmission network at the moment is only 65 gigawatts. So you're talking about three times the amount that we currently have connected, trying now to connect because they're all looking to get a slice of that pie. And it's even more critical now, as people look to electric vehicles as a viable option, as people increasingly look to heat pumps as a viable option, and as this investment in renewables flows to the UK, we need to be ready for it. We need to have a network that can understand what do we need where? Use smart technology to give us that predictability of demand increases, to give us that predictability of where we will need to upgrade the network and how regularly we'll need to do that between now and 2050, rather than now and the next five years. And really look at how can we perfectly balance all of those new connecting assets with the demand that is changing so quickly. And I think, that's where smart grids can really come into their sort of full swing and potential is in that prediction, in that ability to figure out what's
2: about to happen before it happens. Fantastic, Charles. I want to get onto this queuing issue because the numbers there are quite mind-boggling often, but let's get to that a little later in this podcast. But take me into the question around the consumer's role in this, not just the prosumers, but actually the consumers. Smart meters in the UK. What's been the experience? It has been
0: complicated and full of pitfalls. And I think that's been the case for many countries, but the UK, I would say it is rather unique. We've recently gone over the point of 50% of households having a smart meter, which is fantastic news. But we really need to bump those numbers up. And we've gotten to a stage where everyone who wants a smart meter has one. Now we have to convince the people who either couldn't be bothered to get one or just don't want one. So there is a real role in for consumers in terms of behavioral change and in terms of adoption of that technology. One of the things that has happened in that process of rolling out smart meters is that we have been a little ineffective in selling them. They have been sold to consumers as a way to look at How are you, how much energy are you using? How much are you spending on your energy bill? It is not just about that. It's about enabling this further capability of the whole system and your data contributing to an effective low cost energy system for everyone. And really getting that point across and saying, this is not just about your bills. It's also about enabling this smart future that keeps us all with lights on and warm homes. So. Getting that message across is now our challenge. We're now getting to a point where wider technology and technology that people want to use is overtaking smart meters. So smart electric vehicle charging, for example, that's a behavioral change that doesn't require behavioral change. It could be automated. It can be done for you. So consumers don't have to do things. And that's the end goal for the sector is we don't want consumers to have to think about how they use their energy. We want their energy usage to be
2: automated in the best way for them and the system. I think Charles, that's such a powerful point about linking this in with the whole debate about the energy, energy transition, rather than a debate about bills. I think that's a vital part of this conversation and why these types of conversations are so important. Charles, thanks for that. Martin, can I bring you back in on the technical solutions, this need for greater flexibility I want you to walk us through some other areas for people who, certainly Marta, there are many millions of us who aren't quite as expert as you are in this fascinating area.
1: Thank you, Kamal. So yes, we are into our path to becoming a full distributed system operator. So from being a DNO towards a DSO. So it's all about flexibility. It's all about managing constraints. It's all about enabling renewable energy producers to connect to the existing network without having to reinforce if it's not necessary. So one of the key technologies that is the foundation of our DSO strategy is the active network management, which allows for automatic decisions to be taken by the control system because it's impossible for a control engineer in the control room that is looking at the screens of the control system to make a decision on whether an area has to be isolated because the network doesn't have enough capacity. Because the situation can change very quickly. So it's not possible for a human to make a quick decision so that we keep safety and we keep the network valid to undertake an additional energy flow. So active network management is built upon an architecture that we call constraint management zones. So we identify areas where we will have new renewable energy producers. And in in that area, we enable additional intelligence in in a substation where we enable connections to happen from the electricity, from the renewable energy producers. And we've got intelligence, which is A&M, that is able to monitor real-time the energy flow incoming to the network. So it can detect if the capacity of the network that will integrate this this incoming energy flow is able to support it. And, And if it's not able to support it, then it will send an instruction to curtail the energy flow coming in.
2: It's brilliant, Marta, to hear, <laughs> you know, I walk into my kitchen, I turn on the kettle. All the work that that you and Iberdrola and many others do in this space to, to try and make that as an efficient system as possible with the aim of ensuring that decarbonization that we all need to do happens is really remarkable to hear. I do love it. How does that differ from how the grid was managed?
1: So... In the mid-90s or so, the network diagram were on paper, stuck to the wall of the control room. So there was no real-time information about the status of the network. In case of a fault, we would know from the customer rather than being proactive. So you can imagine the huge difference that it makes having a digital representation of the network diagram that is 24-7 monitoring every asset that we've got, the ability to make quick decisions in terms of isolating a fault, restoring service to impacted customers. So now we've got automation devices that can interact with the control systems and can automatically open and close a remote switch gear. We've got telecommunications that connect these automation devices in the field to the control systems. And we've got low-voltage monitors. We've got the smart meters, as Charles said. They are key to to, to giving us information about the status of the low-voltage network so we can immediately identify where the fault is located so we can react much more quickly, restoring the service. So at the end, it's about... Enabling net zero, it's about allocating integrated renewable energy, but it's also increasing the customer experience. It's a term that is very popular these days having a digital twin of the network. That's what is helping us to make decisions in real time, but also to be trained for storm situations and also identifying where are the constraints, where are the issues with the network in case we need to integrate one million of electric vehicles as as it is the case by 2030 or one million of electric heat pumps. So we need to know in advance if the network is ready.
2: Thanks so much, Marta. Now, Rob, obviously, for someone of my age, always a bit depressing when you hear that the 1990s are ancient history, but there we are. Rob, just touch on two points for us. I think it would be really helpful. A, Charles has raised this issue around the connection queues. And Charles, I want to come back to you on that shortly. Rob, firstly, in the US, are there similar problems around connection queues and what might some of the solutions be? And then just the second thing is this, the notion of what are the evolving technologies that can help us integrate renewable and decarbonized energy sources into the present
3: electricity system? But start us with the queues question first. Sure. Yes, it sounds like a very similar problem here. We have a huge amount of generation projects trying to connect to the existing system. In fact, we have two terawatts of generation projects, mostly wind, solar and storage trying to connect and that's compared to the two terawatts compared to the 1.25 terawatts of all generation on the system presently. So we have, we could more than replace the current generation fleet. With that, we we have an incentives and incredible consumer interest in wind, solar and storage and so there are projects trying to connect. The real root cause of this problem is insufficient transmission capacity. We just don't have the grid where it needs to be in order to integrate all of these new resources. So for that, we really need to have proactive transmission planning that considers the locations of future generation and the needs of consumers and demand and puts that together in a long-term transmission plan. And this also relates to the second part of your question of the technology. So if we need to deliver more power across distances, Then there are ways to do that more efficiently with technologies. A great example that I think a lot of the listeners here will relate to is when the wind is blowing, it's not only spinning turbines, but it's also cooling down power lines. And if you can deliver more without heating up that line because you're getting the natural cooling, then you have more capacity to deliver the power. Now, if you just rate that system in a dumb way, which is what's happening, basically the status quo most around most of the U.S. is it's just a static rating. It's the same rating day in, day out, whether it's windy or hot or cold or, or not windy, you have a constraint on the amount of power. But if you rate it dynamically, dynamic line ratings using monitoring and control technologies, then you can deliver sometimes 20 or 30% more over that path. So that's a very tangible example of a smart grid that interconnects more clean energy than we otherwise would have. So we have a lot of opportunities for what we're calling grid enhancing technologies like dynamic line ratings and power flow control, topology optimization here. And then we also have technologies in the hardware, superconductors and advanced conductors with composite core that they don't, they don't sag as much because they're, they don't have a metal for their structural component inside the wire, the cable. And so on a hot day, if they're not sagging into vegetation, then you can also deliver more power over that type of line. So as we replace a lot of the lines that are 70 or 80 years old here in the U.S., we're trying to, starting to look at some of these advanced technologies for the asset replacement that could deliver more and also be more resilient against the severe weather that we're finding. Rob, it's amazing, isn't it, to think of just
2: the practicalities of things like power lines sinking into vegetation is an issue when you're talking about distribution. It's brilliant to hear that there is real practical effort that needs to be made in this space. We're going to get on to, Rob, the issues around politics and policy more precisely, and the need for long-term policy in these areas. But Charles, I want to come back to you around that Amazing statistic that in the UK, there are 600 parties in the connection queue. Charles, how do we start thinking about how we solve some of those issues? Because if we don't, frankly, we're not going to be in a position where we can meet our net zero obligations. Yeah, absolutely. If we don't resolve the issue, then we simply won't meet the targets
0: that we've got set for 2030, for 2035. And for 2050, obviously the big net zero target. So in order to resolve some of these issues, there's quite a lot of work that's already being progressed. National Grid ESO is already looking at how do you reform the way the queue works and think about things like having other gates where you can effectively skip part of the queue. If you think about a normal queue at the moment, that's how the queue for connections works, that you get into the queue at the back and you wait your turn. First in, first served, but with 600 people in the queue, people joining at the end, are getting told, well, we might be able to connect you in 2036. And so the first thing you need to do is to check if everyone in that queue really means it. Do you have any steps that you have taken to show that you were actually going to connect on time? Have you got planning permission? Have you figured out what your project looks like and got investors there to back it up? Making sure that all of those connection applications are actually realistic is the first step of just slimming down that queue a bit and giving that opportunity for things to move a little bit faster. The second area is looking at how we address the queue. How do we think about connecting different technologies? If we know that connecting the person who's fifth in the queue, that is an energy storage project, means that we'll be able to connect other people in that area before having to dig up the wires and pipes and replace those with bigger ones because you've reached that constraint limit, then surely we should allow that flexible technology to jump the queue, get connected first, if it means that it connects other people faster. But I think it's also very related to the approach that Martha mentioned of active network management and this approach to curtailment National Grid has estimated that the cost of curtailment in the UK, so switching off a wind farm, for example, because it's generating too much energy in that local area, will rise from 0.5 billion a year to today, to 1 billion or 2.5 billion by 2026. So that's three years from now, it will either double or Quintuple the cost to consumers of keeping, curtailing that energy. And that's not to mention the cost of then getting other generation from somewhere else nationally to turn on so that you've got enough to meet demand. So, thinking about that problem, that's a huge cost that could be going into flexibility markets. It could be going into ways to change behaviors, looking at industrial users who are desperate to reduce their energy costs, business users who are desperately looking for something. It could be used to incentivize energy efficiency measures. It could be used to incentivize uptake of smart meters and get them using smart technologies or investing in on-site generation. So you can simply send them a signal with this smart grid, send them a signal that says, could you turn off the half an hour? Could you change that process until, you know, a few hours from now? And that sort of technology is helping us to look at how do we approach flexibility markets and how do we incentivize the right behaviors in order to use the network that we've already got
2: at the same time as connecting and upgrading more. At least the Brits like nothing better than discussing queues. So I hope we can make progress on some of your innovative solutions to this connection queue issue. Let's move into the area of funding for so much of this infrastructure, digital technology work that needs to be done Rob, what's your sense? As Charles says, we're in a position where people are counting the dollars and cents or the pounds and pennies at the end to get to the end of their week. In such an environment, the announcement of big schemes may be funded to an extent by government expenditure are going to be very difficult. What's your sense about the funding mechanisms that could be most useful in these spaces?
3: Sure. Well, in the United States, we have 50 states and 50 economic regulators, the public utility commissions who generally approve the cost recovery from the consumers or the ratepayers in their states. And that, that whole structure is a bit of a challenge when we're sometimes talking about interstate highway type lines that might cross four or five states. And we also have a system where it's generally, it's called cost of service regulation where the utility invests capital and gets the recovery with a rate of return on that. Sometimes that structure is not conducive to relatively cheap technology solutions like the grid enhancing technologies I I mentioned. We look at the UK's performance-based incentives with some jealousy. We would like to have that some of that here in the U.S., where the utility is rewarded for reducing congestion and curtailment and increasing performance, so we have some regulatory reforms in in our regulatory structure here in the U.S. You know, some of the investments really could you, know, you could say benefit the whole country or you know twenty or more states at once, and so there's a good argument for some more federal funding from the US government, but that's hard to get. And we haven't really succeeded in, in in getting much of that. So we're looking at, you know, a funding system in our traditional regulatory structure, which sometimes feels like putting a square peg in a round hole. It's a very tough conversation. Charles, a
2: little bit of praise there for the UK, which is maybe not regular from the global communities, but we're getting it on energy. When you come to the funding mechanisms, is the UK well set? The UK is not currently well set.
0: I think we have historically got the issue of funding things through energy bills because previously energy in the UK was relatively cheap and it hides it from being a tax, which is effectively what it ends up being. And it is a fairly regressive approach of recovering that cost. But it does simplify things. It means that the Treasury can't change their mind every time there's a new Chancellor and say, oh, well, actually, we don't think that much money is appropriate. We're going to cut down on that. It's given to the regulator. It's given to the networks to figure out how much do you need to spend over a certain amount of time. But the approach that was taken previously was if you don't spend it, then you share it with shareholders and consumers. Whereas now I think we've gotten to the stage where we need to spend quite a lot of money, a significant amount it's something like quadruple the amount that we need to spend in the next 10 years compared to the last 10 years. So it's a significant amount of money. And right now people don't want any additional costs on their bills. Network costs at the moment, I think are about 25% of the bill. Before the wholesale price of energy went up, there were about 30% of consumers' bills in the UK. So reducing that cost, is obviously important to politicians at the moment and trying to make sure that we've got that approach that funds it fairly is really complicated. Where does that funding come from? How is it fair to recover it? A real challenge. So we're not perfect, certainly, but yes, I think we've gotten away with quite a better system than the US has. Net zero is a economic benefit. That is the argument. But
2: how to make this politically acceptable? I do not know. Rob, we've spoken in the main there around the bill payers picking up or oh, having to have a discussion about picking up a lot of this cost about government, whether that state or federal level, putting in money. You provide policy advice to clients on transmission and power markets in this journey towards low-cost decarbonization. What about bringing the public and the private sector together? What is the private sector's role, the investor's role, the businesses involved in this growing, rapidly growing market to ensure that we do hit the targets, those bold targets that we've
3: set ourselves? Sure. On the networks, we have plenty of willing investors and plenty of investment capital out there that would love to a part of network investment. What they need though is a way to get their money back. You could just, for example, you could build a line across four states that benefits everybody, but the benefits are so diffuse that nobody would raise their hand to want to pay for it. It's a classic public good. The same could be said for the infrastructure of the system, the central control and dispatch system, where you're integrating, you know, all the technology and the monitoring of the system that Marta described, that really benefits everybody. And it's not going to get paid for if Marta just said, you know, hello world, who would like to pay for this system? It's, you know, you're not going to fund a military that way either. So we need to have some type of public policy to fund the guts of this system on which all of modern society depends now. Right. So, that really, in theory, could be either governments through taxation or it could be electricity ratepayers through the regulatory process. I would take either as long as we build the right amount and have a way for investors to get their money back. We don't have to have government ownership. We can have private companies do everything that needs to be done. And they're good arguments for that. And in the US, that's mostly how the system operates. And I think, Rob, very importantly around this issue of ensuring the costs fall
2: in an equitable way so that those who can afford, who have the means, whether that's at a business level, whether that's at a government level, or maybe even at a consumer level, those that have the means are able to carry the heaviest load of the investment we need to make.
3: Yeah, that's right. And what Charles said it certainly applies here about the regressivity, the higher incidence on lower income people recovering costs through electricity bills. We have an awkward structure here in the US where the a certain amount of costs need to be recovered by a state and then it's up to that state to allocate between different customer classes You know residential consumer industrial and then different rates for different whether it's incomes or by usage and that's completely separate from the you know the federal process of allocating costs between states where the federal regulators have no role in which customer class pays so much which adds just another level of complexity and coordination here that makes our work interesting every day it's fantastic
2: rob even though there are obviously many complicated challenges to hear from Rob, you from Charles and from Marta. There are clearly solutions there to be grabbed if we can get those opportunities. Marta, bring us home. Just give us this overview about why this matters. I think there are two big themes I'm hearing from this fantastic conversation we've just enjoyed together. One is our journey to decarbonizing energy production, our journey to net zero, but as important is the integration of the consumer's interests in this. Martin, just take us through maybe for that final thought out of the complexities of policy, regulation, who pays for what, why this is such a necessary journey for us globally.
1: Well, as we've been listening during the podcast, smart grids are here, so are a reality. In in 2023, and is something that needs to be here for a long time. So it goes along hand in hand with our obliged energy transition. Together with the net zero commitments, there is a clear benefit to smart grids that I, I mentioned before, and it's the better quality of supply, so the better customer experience. Let's not forget about the long blackout periods that our Families suffered in the 90s and the situation, the reality nowadays where there are incentives from the regulators to reduce the time of interruption to the minimum. So we are working towards an objective to having 100% availability of the supply for the customer. And that's thanks to smart grids. So basically, at the end, all the investment that we are making is going to have a final repercussion in the customer. At the end, the customer is at the center of everything we do. And and the final purpose is to, to having a much better service delivered. So it's enabling the transition that we are obliged in terms of net zero, but at the same time, delivering what is best for the customer.
2: Marta, what a great place to finish. Good for the good for the consumer, good for the planet. You're not going to get much better than that. I wanted to say thank you, Rob, Charles and Marta. What a fantastic conversation brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ibidrola. It was produced and edited by Bella Soames. Join us in the next episode where we'll hear from Pedro Azagra, CEO of Avongrid, about connecting the grid in the US.